I'm Aaron Armstrong. I'm Pete Moran. And I'm Bill Fox. And we love to watch. We love to watch Under Siege White White Territory. Hey Pete, hey Bill. Hey. Hi. Hello. Bill, this is your fourth appearance in six months? <laughs> oh, yeah, it absolutely is. <laughs> Bill Bill does remind me of the type of person who uh at some point in college just all of a sudden lived at someone else's house for two months. He's like, well, I'm all, <laughs> I started drinking here. I enjoyed drinking here. I'm just going to stay here for a little bit, I think. Uh, eventually has to, like, go back and get, like, new clothes, but sees a JCPenney closer to the house and is like, I could just go there and get some clothes. <laughs> then I don't have to see all my roommates who are like, where the fuck have you been for two months? There's a lot of questions getting asked at the old place and not <laughs> yeah. many at the new place. Not at the JCPenney's either. <laughs> yeah, Bill Fox... Uh, Peter's brother-in-law. You started dating his sister when uh, you were in high school, right? Yeah, she can tell and you. And you're my I probably age. was a little bit overzealous in high school on, on the drinking front. Well, yeah. So Peter lived through that. He Peter had to go hide under his bed because Bill was rampaging <laughs> through the house again. No, I just wake him up to play Legos. <laughs> I can't. Get up. Wake, wake up. Get up. God, Bill, the Sky Tower. Yeah, so, uh, but where we love to watch for movie podcasts, we pick a theme. We do movies over the course of that month. Around that theme, this week is our third week of Under Siege Month, featuring no Under Siege movies. Uh, but it's still Under Siege Month. Under Siege did not copyright the concept of being under siege. So Steven Seagal did. Get that out of your head. Oh, like Steven Seagal could... could maintain a copyright claim just kidding me that guy can barely function right now except just saying racist shit uh but no we're not doing under siege we are doing this we are doing the uh just for fun this time doing the chronological exploration of the siege movie with some big touch points uh throughout the years which basically means um one from a long time ago one from somewhat long time ago and then two relatively recently. Uh, but uh, we're on a third week doing a pretty big one. One that uh, has been talked about on this show before in our best of 2016 uh, episode. And that is a little movie called Green Room. This is sort of like Fury Road. This is a, this is a movie I wanted to do on the show for a damn long time uh, for a bunch of reasons. I love the director. Uh, and th- and I consider this sort of a perfect movie. Not to show my hand too early. Wait, were you guys? Yeah. Th- when did you guys? Yeah, start this was this a move. So yeah, we started this podcast in 2016. So this is actually a movie that I think came out that summer. I saw it in theaters. I think Peter saw it in theaters. Um, so I think Peter and I were like messaging about how someday we should do this on the show, having seen it in theaters, which I'm sure has been the case. I well, I know has been the case in um. For some other, from other, for some other movies, and some we've done right after seeing them in the theaters. It's rare, but it's happened, like uh, The Shape of Water. But yeah, this, uh, yeah, this would have come out the summer after we started the show. Yeah, and and at the time we were desperately avoiding uh, new movies because anything recent. Yeah, this is one we're very excited about. Uh, how do you pronounce? Is it Jeremy Salmer? Right? 
I say Saulnier, but it might just be Saulnier. Uh, I've been saying Saulnier <laughs> for like five or six years. Ever, ever since, since it became Blue, a pretentious Blue. schmuck. <laughs> the guy that makes Blue Ruin and Green Room, I feel like it's Saulnier. But <laughs> if he was making uh, something, some, some arty French movies, Peter, maybe Saulnier. Or, uh, a remake of Amadeus. And I still, to my shame, I know it was on Peter's best of... Was it 2019? I still haven't seen his third movie, Hold Off the Dark. Yeah, Hold the Dark is... Hold the Dark. Uh, Hold the Dark is actually a solid recommendation for both of you. Bill, I think you'd go you'd go crazy. If you liked this movie, um, I think you'd go crazy for Hold the Dark. It's uh, That was his straight-to-Netflix movie that uh, everyone ignored and got uh, okay to good reviews. Um, yeah, straight-to-Netflix, which is so weird because, like, let's talk a little bit about uh, uh, Saulnier. Uh, and then we'll talk a little bit how, about Bill's just first time seeing this movie, and then we'll get into the movie. I don't know if we need to really describe how this fits the category. Uh, <laughs> they're in a room. They are under siege. Uh, it fits our under siege month. But, um, Peter, did you see Blue Rune before this, or did you go back after seeing Green Room? Uh, I saw Blue Ruin first. Um, so Blue Ruin was sort of a indie-buzzed uh, thriller. <clears throat> and uh, people compared him to... A lot of the big genre names, so I knew I had to see it. Uh, they compared yep. it to John Carpenter in his sort of simplicity and lean, like muscular leanness. Um, they complained it to Michael Mann to have a sort of a slice of life reality where there, a lot of the violence is very uh, unglamorous and blunt and gross, um, and not, but not in like a. Uh, it, while it can be graphic, it's not necessarily horror movie style splattery in the way, say, like, even like Jim Mickle was compared to John Carpenter at the time. But Jim Mickle loves the big splattery, yeah. gushing kind of shit. Uh, Hold the Dark uh, is gory as shit. But when you're watching it, the, the result is not, oh, cool. Your the result is is horror. Um who are these people? Yeah, and I, Blue Ruin the people me that fast. talk about comparing them to John Carpenter, all that stuff. Like, where do you guys get this information? Because the people I hang out with don't ever talk about these movies. I'd never even heard of. This I don't one. think you have good friends. What do your do your friends talk about movies at all, Bill? I don't have a lot of friends. <laughs> yeah, it's tough. <laughs> if it wasn't for the dissolve, I can tell you that there was a a a, a guy who I used to work with who saw all the movies, and him and I would talk movies. And then that was it for from a real life perspective. And I now I have a, was that a guy couple, FX the channel. That guy was yeah. They had the movies. Uh, yeah, I was talking to Dave Holmes when they did. Uh, he didn't talk back to me, but he was on the screen giving me the the <laughs> the, 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 the DVD extras. And I I brought it to work the TV. So technically, I talked to a guy at work about movies is uh, accurate but sad. <laughs> well, the people I talk about movies with are on this podcast exclusively. <laughs> I mean, at some point we should come out about my journey through horror movies. Once I like check a few more off the list, by the way, yeah, I need the next couple. A, um, yeah. But I don't, no one else I know is like, Hey, have you seen this? Or do you feel like this guy compares in his leanness or <laughs> muscular leanness to John Carpenter? Like I've never heard anyone talk to me like that before. Perhaps they're just assuming. <laughs> As a matter of fact, I, I may assault them but. if they said. <laughs> I, I feel like – so for me, I had some good friends that worked at a video store in high school that did the kind of like constantly – record. everyone would leave and take five movies and watch a bunch. And so we I just were thought you made that up for the podcast. Like this was no, like your no. like alter ego for the podcast. Yeah, I worked in a movie store no. and I saw all the movies. No, I did. Yeah, uh, Brian and Matt 
um, were the two two of the guys I remember the most, and we um, I'd say their last names, but that feels a little unfair. Um, uh, but uh, yeah, and we used to talk movies all the time, and I discovered reviews, and then I had uh, a couple friends in college that it was the same way, and like you know, then a friend after. Like I feel like I haven't had a large group of people until like. Um, Something like the dissolve, or just a bunch of pe- little Aaron and Peters, for the most part, <laughs> talking about talking about movies, um, in in that many different like perspectives, but like with with similar frames of reference. But uh, I I feel like I've always had like a couple people throughout my life that were similarly um, invested in, in in movies as a as an art form and as something that merits a ton of discussion. Um, and then a bunch of people that, like, put up with me. You guys make it a little bit of intimidating, I'm not going to lie, because I don't have any of the context behind these movies. I'm talking about these things in a vacuum, but, I mean, it's fun. It's fun for me. I, I've enjoyed a lot of the movies you guys have suggested, but otherwise, like, these these conversations that you have about all these comparisons that people are making, you know, quotes <laughs> people – like that's where I'm. I'm lost. I'm like, where are these conversations? <laughs> Some of it's reviewers too. We we tend to obsessively. But have where are the reviews? Like, are you? You can talk There's about Letterbox about a lot. What is Letterbox? So Letterbox is essentially a social media site only for reviewing and rating movies. So you keep track of what you watch, when you watched it. You can give a star rating, and then you can follow other people. And there's like a feed that shows what other people that you are following are watching and rating in their reviews. But yeah, so I was drawn to Blue Ruin because I I kind of heard it was um, extremely enjoyable because it kind of showed the how difficult the process of committing to kill someone or be a hitman is where like if you've never done it before it's not just as simple as i'm gonna get a gun that's easy to obtain that i understand how to load and then i'm gonna go do this murder that like that's actually like a there's a lot of little decisions and little things to learn and figure out throughout that and i kind of heard that this is a movie that uh, he's doing a, a genre film, a very common, like, you know, hitman, revenge, kill people type movie, but done in a, I don't want to say realistic, because there's, you know, realism is definitely in the eye of the beholder, but in a way that shows all the little things that sometimes movies don't show or don't focus on on much. Like, that was its point. What is the process involved here? And I think Green Room is the same way, uh, just on a bigger scale, where it's it's kind of revealing like, okay, we have five people that we need to kill, and we're Nazis, so we don't have a problem killing them. But how do we kill them in a way that preserves our ability to be Nazis? Uh, and it spends so, so much time on trying to figure out those pieces, uh, and then w- once all that is set up and you realize how much work's gone into all these things, then kind of lets the the firework factory hit in a very uh, uh, gory and satisfying um, way. So, yeah, I, I would highly recommend Blue Ruin. We're obviously not going to talk about it. I am disappointed he stopped naming his uh, films after colors, but um, should have been called uh, Hold Hold the Black, I think, probably. Mm-hmm. Just only make movies with colors. That would have been uh, that would have been uh, not a bad title, to be honest. Told the black's pretty good, Aaron. Just off the cuff, like that. Yeah, I mean, uh, it could definitely be misinterpreted, though. I think maybe. <laughs> <laughs> 
Uh, so yeah, Jeremy Saulnier is is sort of uh, I consider him sort of like picking up the baton of Michael Mann and directors like that. We're sort of making a stylized version of a, a realistic film. It's about it's it's less about each shot feeling like a sort of. Uh, in the moment uh documentary style right it is stylized he does believe in shot composition he yeah. uses uses tracking shots like it's not it's not supposed to you know, yeah like I, a, a it's it's not dogma 95 i didn't mean yes. that it's just that he's no, no, no. that's why that's why realism's not the right word he's showing the process and all the yeah. little decisions that need to i would be say made. pragmatic is yeah. is a good term for it where he's talking about the sort of yes the process the pragmatism the the effort involved and like the the number of nazis uh in this movie is like somewhat small i think there's like ultimately like six to eight red laces plus the three to four you know sort of leadership crew the middle manager on up to the top guy darcy like it's not that big of a crew it's not assault on precinct 13 where it's like countless body bags just getting dragged out of there afterwards it is it is about like man by man body by body move by move um in a way that um you're feeling the size and shape and the claustrophobia of the siege as you go and each attack uh has a sort of blunt reality to it in the way michael mann does where michael mann doesn't do the oliver stone thing where the body is just getting riddled in slow-mo over and over and over again he's he does something very different which is more like uh the guy will get killed and then it'll cut away so quickly to like the next sense of action because in real life that's what would happen a guy would get splattered and then your attention would get turned diverted somewhere else um and he does, he sort of made a career, um, Jeremy Saulnier has sort of made a career in this mold. Uh, Blue Ruin is similar. Um, Hold the Dark is also very uh, blunt and brutal in that manner and unforgiving and nihilist in some sense. And he's making another movie called Re- Rebel Rebel Ridge, um, which is apparently about um, like uh, backwoods militia types and sort of like a battle between them. Um, and so... Uh, he's he's very much fitting into this this sort of uh, a little bit true crime, uh, a little bit you know stylized genre, uh, you know elevated genre kind of stuff. But also like um, I wanted to have Bill on because I feel like Bill would really dig this guy's stuff, and I feel like this is a good start. Yeah. Before we get into Bill's thoughts, I do think that this, unlike some of the other siege movies we've done. This movie really is the 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 siege as a game of chess, right? Like you can't if you're playing chess, you can't just go and move all your pieces aggressively towards the king, right? You are going to get get slaughtered, all your pieces are going to get killed. It is about tactically figuring out where things need to be and about how you remove pieces that are harmful to you off the board. So, you know, a lot of time is spent in this in this movie about not how do we shoot them or how do we break in and kill them. That's never in question. We know that we can do it in the same way that you know if I get my my queen and my rooks and everyone over, you know, I can go kill the king. But right now, my biggest issue is the fact that there's a queen staring me down, which in this case is like the gun. So they have to spend a lot of time. How do we remove the gun from causing problems before we attack the king? So it really is this siege as a as a slow moving chess game up until the end of chess when all of a sudden it's over in this like sudden like oh shit everything's falling apart and someone usually loses um, quickly whereas like assault on precinct 13 what last week was much more of like a uh 
a hungry, hungry hippos, right? It's just, here's all the stuff coming really quick. And let's, <laughs> you know, every time you drop the marbles or whatever, you're going to pound as quickly as possible until exactly. there's no more marbles. It's a tower defense game. Uh, yeah. Almost. Um, and that's not to say Assault on Precinct 13 is not super, uh, super artfully done, as we, I'm sure we discussed last week. Siege movies are usually like moments of chaos combined with like little lulls as you to extend my hungry hungry hippos metaphor as you count up the marbles and put them back in again and then just complete chaos while it's happening you know we saw that a little with rio bravo too i assume um (laughs) we haven't watched it yet i've never seen it but i'm gonna we can cut it out if i'm right uh or leave it in if it's funnier Uh, but like this really is a hey yeah they're all they're all sitting ducks they have no way to defend themselves we can kill them but here's all the problems that's going to cause for us. So uh, we'll get into the movie in a sec. Bill, though, has, I assume, not seen Blue, Blue Ruin because he doesn't he know the people. He has not seen it. I have and, not. And uh, probably hasn't seen Hold the Dark. Nope. Uh, so and, and this movie you hadn't seen before. Uh, we just suggested, as, as Peter said, that Bill would probably think this was rad. So, Bill, what did you think of Green Room? I thought it was rad. I mean, Peter knows what I like. I hate to admit that, but no, I mean, I <laughs> I saw it for the first time, I don't know, a week or so ago, and I've subsequently seen it three or four more times, as is my tradition before being on this podcast, where I watch it over and over and over. Um, it's I, I like the dedication. I usually at most get in two, but I like that I like that you uh, you're willing to bounce back and back and back in. Why well, I don't back back I don't always in. catch it all. In fact, I would say the first time. I really realized that I didn't pay attention nearly enough to this one. I mean, it's... It's quiet. It's a unique... Well, it's not just quiet. Like, there's a lot of small stuff that, like, if you pay attention, like, they, you know, they almost worked from the back to front or wrote it from the end to the beginning. I mean, small little stuff. I mean, it's sometimes too neat where they put a bow on every little bit of foreshadowing, but I... Yeah. I really enjoyed it. Um, I would say that... Peter had, you know, mentioned this before over a certain video game we played, and it probably jaded my thinking uh, for a long time. Rainbow Six Siege. Animal no. Crossing uh, New Horizons. Uh, yeah, <laughs> both of them. Um, <laughs> we have I think, to talk about I, I think that's, Siege, hold on, though. I think that's one game. And, uh, <laughs> Animal, Cro- it's Animal Crossing colon New Horizons, I believe. I don't think those are two games. Bill. Well, fine. <laughs> He was he was saying Rainbow Six Siege and Animal Crossing. Yeah, oh, both I of see. them. Both of them. No, but Rainbow Six Siege. I mean, there's a level in this in that game, and it's you know become a bit of its own cult classic. Where it's what four years old now, and still yeah. tons and tons of people play it. I realize there's a level in that game that see, I, I'm I pretty sure that. is straight from this movie, and I never realized that. And I played the game religiously for over a year, and they straight up knocked off this movie for one of the. The main maps and the rotation, and it is fantastic to have finally seen the movie. Um, so I, I that part was fun for me. But the second time I watched it, I I don't know. I realized it was a unique siege movie for me, and that my tension went down as the violence went up, um, which I, I can't really describe. But you know, as you continue to knock pieces off the board and options yeah. become more limited, I kind of settled in. Um, so it was a really fun thing to watch because it wasn't as if I was getting more and more, you know, anxiety as the film went on. So my wife had seen this movie before, uh, when it came out on 
Blu-ray after. She didn't see it with me in theaters, but I wanted to watch it the second I could watch it again. She watched it and she really liked it. Uh, when we started it, she was like, because the beginning of this is a little bit like not quite setting up stuff. We'll, we'll talk about it in a sec. But she was like, I don't want to watch this. Like people talking about punk bands I've never heard of. Uh, and I'm like, you know, you've seen this before and you liked it. She's like, I'm just going to go to bed. And then we got to the point where she uh, – so she was literally on the edge of the couch with her phone in her hand, ready to go to bed. And then we got to the part where they end up at the club. She's like, oh, I have seen this movie, but, I, but I'm too tired to watch it. I'm going to go to bed. She ended up staying up for the entire movie on the edge of the couch with the phone in her hand. Uh, like she was going to – she never like – Committed to, like, laying back down, but she was so, like, gripped by everything that, um, uh, yeah, she ended up, uh, she ended up staying, staying for the entirety. It, it's but unique. it's that kind of movie. I mean, it, but it, yeah. it, it keeps the tension, but it's like, uh, I don't know how to describe it in the sense that it doesn't ever, like, give you that catalyst to say, oh, don't like it here. I mean, it, it blends very well, or it, I guess it slows over time I in terms of bodies or the body count drops but i don't know i i it was surprisingly um easy to re-watch despite having kind of the the horror angle to it yeah and it, it is like easier to watch on the on the second try the way a lot of genre movies are where like i i actually we'll get into what is annoying about the punk kids but like i actually like all the punk kids for their own reason especially on like rewatches. yeah um because they're annoying and they're they're kind of posing, but like they're they're all interesting characters, and like none of them deserve what the fuck happens to them. Um, even the ones that survive don't deserve that. Um, and uh, but on rewatches, like I'm able to kind of let go of them and sort of see it more as Pat and Amber's journey. Um, Amber getting revenge as she goes and Pat sort of being wronged in the, in the sense then, you know, being wronged and then starting to take more ownership and command and, and getting revenge as well. Um, and you're, you're right, Bill, there's a sort of, uh, but there's like a sort of empowerment arc, but it starts before they actually are empowered in any way. It's because their mindset starts to change at a certain point in the movie. And you're like, Oh, they're no longer panicking and just throwing shit against the door and, you know, just keep wailing on that security guy. Um, like they're actually it, it feels like they're actually like gaining a sense of, of momentum or not even momentum. It feels like they're gaining a sense of empowerment, I guess, is this is the cleanest way to say it. And it sort of it sort of takes a little bit of the um, the, the fear away from it. Uh, but it never lets off the tension. Yeah, well, they give up a little bit too, right? I mean, the drummer's kind of yeah. like, "Fuck it, I'm gonna go for it." No sense in waiting. And after that yeah. point, you're yeah. kind of like, whether or not they make it, you know, I'm gonna, I'm gonna <laughs> sit back in my chair a little bit. Um, but uh, I want to double back on Rainbow Six Siege really quickly because that's also a game that Bill and I bonded over. Hold on, I, actually, I have some thoughts on Rainbow Six Siege really quick because I'm sure Peter's gonna be more relevant. So I'm gonna get my joke <laughs> ones in here quick. <laughs> One, when Bill says stuff like. But there's still a ton of people I know playing that game. That's the equivalent of my, like, who who, who are these people that talk about movies? <laughs> like, I've never met a person. Like, I'm aware of Rainbow Six. I had one of the PlayStation games. I've never met a person who plays Rainbow Six Siege, let alone a group of people that are still uh, in the, in the, in the, in the Siege. What's, what's the colon for this one? Rainbow Six Siege. Oh, that's, oh, Siege. All right. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, so we're doing well, siege. But mode. hold on, hold on. 
And then the last thing I have to say <laughs> is that Peter once, when uh, we were talking about we should play a video game online with some of his friends that play online, which turned out to be Bill and other guests, Ryan. But I had not, I, I talked to Ryan on the show. I had not met you, Bill. Um, yet, he said that, well, the problem is, is that Bill's probably not a good choice because the only thing he wants to play is Rainbow Six Siege. And then he said, as a matter of fact, a lot of times I have to turn my PlayStation so it displays as offline when I want to play a different game. Because if he sees me online, he's going to force me to play <laughs> Rainbow Six Siege. 100% true. 100% true. What's funny uh, is when you describe the Siege genre, it's like yeah. how I would have described Rainbow Six Siege had you asked me unprompted. Like this, the whole thing's a chess game. I, I'll go on and on about all the comparisons I can make, but... Obviously, this is a podcast about movies and not video games, unfortunately. <laughs> but it's impo- no, but it's important because like it's something we bonded over, and the concept of the game is really interesting because it's your one team is in the room and one team is trying to get in the room, and the team in the room always has special gear to like wall up walls and uh, plant devices to prevent the other team from getting in, and the team that's getting in has sort has their own special um, abilities to get in that that counteract specific abilities to get in, and all of the different player classes are stacked on top of each other so that like certain people have certain gear that like counteracts each other and but and vice versa um and this sort of give and take chess match of the game is what makes it so fascinating and i think that the reason the game caught on for me even as someone who doesn't usually play like i'll play call of duty games like every so often um and i played all of them so i guess that's a bad example um but the uh i usually don't get into military sims that much um and i'll i might pop in them every so often but like this one in particular grabbed me and it was because of its like tight precision and the reason i bring it up on this episode is because it it fits it fits weirdly into the month which is like there's a concept of a siege and counter siege that's super compelling to people like i've never been super into any of the rainbow six or really most of the tom clancy games like i've played a few of them to completion but usually just like pop in i'm like oh this this one isn't for me maybe i'll maybe i'll try another one in a year the the concept that one person defending the room one person's trying to get the fuck in the room is like there's something primal about it yeah i it's a unique game for sure i didn't like the other rainbow six or rainbow six games in general but this one i mean the way you're describing a siege there are moments where okay it's a two minute intense siege and then okay now there's two minutes of complete lull where you're you're gonna defend the room or you know take your measures to defend against the attackers attackers are going to try and scope out the room so it's like a natural kind of progression where i would drink beer and you, you calm down and then it's two minutes of intensity and then it's back down it's the same kind of cadence of some of these siege movies just in video game form and it's very much a chess match i think peter liked it amongst other reasons like some of the other guys we play with because you can take a few guys who are really kind of garbage at first person shooters and get made fun of by 13 year olds in call of duty but if you're (laughs) decently smart and you work somewhat together like that game actually has created an environment where you can be successful which is very very difficult in video games to get past someone who just has you know, bad thumbs. Yeah, I did. I did play uh, some uh, the single player campaign of uh, one of the Rainbow Six uh, Vegas ones. New Vegas. What is it? Rainbow, what is, where did they go? <laughs> probably not to New Vegas. I think regular old Vegas. <laughs> they probably went to old Vegas. Um, 
And I could not get to the first save point after the start because um, I kept getting shot in one shot. And that happened five times. And I'm like, I'm, I don't think I'm done with this. I don't like this. <laughs> and that's not fun. I mean, that's the problem with a lot of the games, you know. I mean, it's it's hard to make a level playing field. All right. Yeah. Let's let's talk about uh, a movie called Crane Room. Let's do it. Yeah. Oh, I got some in that. I'm going to come up with it as I'm talking right now. Mm-hmm. Uh, sh- a g- green room should have been called uh, brown boots. Because <laughs> <laughs> there's there's Nazis. They, there are Nazis. They wear black boots. This, yeah, they were Doc Martin blacks. Uh, I will say this is a movie that has changed a little bit from 2016 when Nazis were were like these were backwoods cults <laughs> um as opposed to I don't know the president and marching in the street um you know big Let's, changes not Nazis I'll tell you what like them like them dislike them they've had a resurgence since this movie came out I, I let's talk about that really quickly before we get to the recap because I think that's that's crucially important um the movie uh, hates Nazis, finds them pathetic, all that. But um, this is not a Django Unchained or uh, some more sort of like, um, you know, left anger, leftist anger filtered through a white guy uh, yeah. kind of stuff. This is not that at all, actually. And it doesn't suffer from the Quentin Tarantino thing either, where um, you're watching, uh, you're watching, uh, uh, in, not Inglorious Bastards, uh, Hateful Eight, and you're like, yeah, yeah, this movie is, uh, this movie is like, I think its heart is in it's in the right place and everything. I think it's 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 righteously angry at America for fucking up the 2016 election and for continuing to drop the ball on racism. But also, should a white guy be saying the N word this much? Um, this yeah, movie, this movie is. Because uh, Quentin Tarantino goes beyond to the point where it's like, no, I don't even think. The most racist person in America said the N word this many times per minute, um, <laughs> but it, but in this movie, like the racial slurs are not thrown out um, as uh, sort of uh, cheap shock value in sentences to remind you that these guys are Nazis. Um, it's used at very decisive moments to the point where, like, when Darcy says the N word, when you get Patrick Stewart to say the N word. Um, it has serious impact. And then the other half of this that I really love is that they are making the Nazis scary. 
and they're adding just enough of a level of professionalism and bureaucracy to it that it makes them scary in the way they are for the real world and makes you take them seriously. And and sort of, it, it's working to undo the comic bookification of the Nazis. It, it, it's it's t- turning them, because that's one problem that, that theorists have talked about, like why Nazis were able to make a comeback, despite the fact that like every kid in America probably saw Indiana Jones and loved Indiana Jones punching out Nazis. And it's that... Um, the media narratives turning Nazis into sort of comic book villains might have had this sort of whiplash effect um, where it made a lot of people, A, not take them seriously that they could come back, and then B, um, not take their evils seriously and say, yeah. oh, this is just this is just a movie, you know, this is just movie bullshit. Real life Nazis, there was actually, you know, there's some gray area in there. And of course, there was no fucking gray area. They were Nazis. But well, I like, think creating this dynamic where they're, they're these comic booky, cartoony characters... Uh, I think had a, had a really devious impact on the culture, and I think movies like this are kind of seeking to undo that. Yeah, and I also think uh, something that was, in retrospect, probably something that I even did is like this concept of like everyone knew there were still Nazis and neo neo Nazis or like these radical right wing racists that like ascribe to Nazi ideology. But then it was like, well, but they're not like real Nazis. Like they don't have the the might of um, a political movement and uh, a country that they're being led by. They're, they're definitely can do damage. They definitely are, are um, uh, operating outside of socially accepted mores and all these kind of things. But like they're at the end of the day, they're these little backwoods groups that ultimately, you know, get drunk and listen to music and um, on a matinee, you know, which is just, just odd, but go on. <laughs> yeah, and uh, what what this what what I think a lot of us didn't didn't reckon with from that perspective is that uh, yeah, neo Nazis were still just the same as Nazis. It's true they didn't have as much political power, but if you get enough neo Nazis, what ends up happening, like it did with the first Nazis, is that or any fascist racist movement, is that it can gain political power with more adherence, and so ignoring it. Or dismissing it is fundamentally dangerous. And that is something that, looking back on this, is very interesting. The one thing that I think is also very interesting that this movie does a really good job of highlighting is when, like, Patrick Stewart talks about who's the true believers, can we get to do this? Because ultimately you learn, for as much as they have their, like, um, racist seminars and a place to drink beer and commiserate, and, you know, they're they're speaking to all this ideology – it is still just a money-making scheme for Patrick Stewart, right? Like, he talks about he's he's using them to basically cheaply run his drug trade and all these other things going on by leaning into an ideology that makes them uh, uh, political adherence to whatever he says and does, willing to risk his life, willing to do all these things and at almost no money by by adding on this Nazi ideology that uh, that basically makes you um, alienated from everyone else, adhering to him, and allows him to profit off it, which is something that is still going on, right? Like, if anything that's been highlighted, like, Trump is using fascism and Nazi ideology and all these things and, and, and hanging on to these true believers in order to make money. And all, so many of the hangers on for him are doing it to make money. They, who, true believers, not true believers. The cause that they're they're the the harm that they're causing doesn't change anything. But at the end of the day, they are using this 
as a way to get people that will not question them, that will do whatever they want, that will cause all this harm while they line their pockets, which is exactly what Darcy, played by Patrick Stewart, is doing in this movie. Probably my favorite part. The fact that he's just an awesome capitalist. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, which which again, yeah, that's film. exactly it. Is that yeah. like they've they've essentially taken like pure capitalism and grafted fascism on top of it, and it shows you how easily fascism and um and capitalism can exist side by side. There's actually very little <laughs> like, commentary on the fascism. Like that to me was like an interesting yeah. thing about the movie. I mean, it, Peter's point about, you know, comic booking it, so to speak. I liked the term. Like the closest point they got to that is when Darcy, you know, if you believe that he's just a capitalist at heart, he's the closest that gets to comic booking it when he's like, show's canceled, our generator's down. But for those of you attending the cultural appropriation class on Wednesday or whatever it is, <laughs> assume that that's still on until we cancel it. Like it felt almost out of place, but for me, it actually reinforced But that reinforced feels right. Like it's why you need, yeah, it's why you need the CPAC and you need the Fox News. Like, you know, like you need those things to create the, um, he uses the word exactly. What does he call it? Uh, not com- not com- communionship, but he uh, says he says it's not a party; it's a movement. Yeah, to to create that kind of like you need those things, but you can tell that like Patrick Stewart doesn't get anything. It's not like he's going there as some sort of like firebrand preacher who like nope. truly believes in all this stuff. But it's like I need to do this because this is how I get the people to do the drug stuff. This is a this is a useful tool. It's the whole purpose. Well, not purpose, but like to me, it underlines the whole movie in that like his points about the fire code. Why do they need to be so careful about killing someone in the club? Right? Because they could have just staged the murder of someone else. But like everything is just to protect his money making organization. Yeah, nothing also, to do with the fascism. You're, we're there. We're there. Okay. I, I, I'll, let's jump right back into that point after this because I have a I have a big point to make about that. That's, that's uh, really awesome the way this sep- the, this movie separates um, and sort of tangles with uh, the you know just a, I'm just running a business here guy and the uh, you know n- neo Nazi skinhead fuck who's like trading in young lives for yeah they're uh, they're my know, customers and employees yeah. yeah so anyways um so. Uh, Green Room is about uh, it's about a group called the Ain't Rights. They're uh, a uh, left-leaning punk ki- group of punk kids. Maybe not left-leaning, maybe anarchist-leaning, but you know they they hate fucking Nazis. So actually, really on that on that quickly, it's funny that uh, the the radio DJ, the, the club promoter, or whatever if you can call him that, the 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 daytime Mexican restaurant promoter. Um, <laughs> He like is like yeah they're they're uh, hardcore right or ultra left basically the same thing <laughs> like <laughs> recognizing that these like the, that political ideology is a is a donut not a line. <laughs> Eventually, yeah. you come back around to fascism if you get too far on the left as well. Yeah, it's 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 so it, essentially the ain't rights are a bunch of yeah they're a bunch of punks they're traveling from gig to gig. Uh, they get. They get fucked on a gig, but the kid that that books them that we just talked about, the, the Mexican daytime restaurant promoter, um, he he says, "All right, my cousin, he has a gig in the backwoods. You know, they're 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 right wing guys, but you know, they'll they'll dig your music, play the early stuff. Um, <laughs> so they they go out to this gig, and it's clearly a neo Nazi club. They're all kind of whispering, but they're like, shit, we'll play the gig.'" Uh, they play Nazi punks, fuck off, 
which actually has zero effect on the movie, which is very interesting. I'll get to that in a moment. Um, it pissed Can I just say, in case we don't get back to it, everyone gets pissed off that he plays that. It's like a big thing that they decide to do to kind of make their one statement while still like playing at the Nazi club and getting money from it. Yeah. But uh, I do love that at the end, the lead singer's like, uh, when everyone's pissed off at him, goes, thank you, that was a cover. <laughs> like, <laughs> like, yeah, every, it's, it's so great, because it, that was, like, the song that, like, hey, there's a lot of Nazis in our punk movement, and the Dead Kennedys are like, just to be clear, you guys should all go fuck off. So, you know, very it's it's i know it's i'm explaining the joke but it's so funny because not only would they know the song they would know what that song was meant to say to fuck them to everyone there um specifically for invading their musical movement and and uh, and also uh that lots and lots and lots of other bands are playing it because arguably like the second or third most most famous punk band of all time uh had it so yeah, um, so so that joke of like when everyone's like he doesn't just move on you. to the next song, but that thank you, cover. that was a cover. <laughs> it's so good. <laughs> it's so good. Sorry. So that actually doesn't play into the plot at all, but I wanted to I wanted to hit that note real quick because I'll come back to it. Uh, they they go they start to go back to the green room after the show, and they're told like actually the next band has the green room right now, so um, we'll we'll just bring you all your stuff. And they're like, they're all like, oh, okay, that's fine. But then one of them has to run back and grab her phone. Um, and she walks in and there's a murder scene. Uh, a young woman, Emily, has been killed. Her friend Amber is crying. And there's two fucking skinheads in there kind of arguing about. They're just kind of standing there watching the scene, actually. They're not even arguing. Um, they're just kind of standing there watching the scene. And uh, essentially, the club owners catch wind of the fact that these these this band, the Ain't Rights, has witnessed uh, this murder. So they essentially uh, scoot them into the room with a security guard uh, with a gun and say, like, no, it's fine. It's fine. We'll figure it out. We'll figure it out, guys. Uh, while that's happening, the band, uh, while that's happening, the Nazis, uh, one of the, the Nazi middle manager, Gabe, um, he he uh, sets it up so that uh, this call, this 911 call that the band tried to make before their cell phone, their one cell phone was taken away. Uh, they're, they're covering that up. They're basically making it so, like, a couple ne- young, not young, like, wannabe. Oh, yeah, you reported startups. a stabbing. We're going to make a stabbing happen. Some some white laces who are trying to make their name in the True Nazi believers. movement. Yeah, they're, they're, they're just, they basically pin it on them. One of them gets gets plugged with the knife a few times. One of them uh, says, like, oh, yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll be holding the knife. And they basically say, like, yeah, you might go to jail for a little bit. If that happens, we'll pay it off, whatever. Anyways, all of this is is just, like, dealing with the cops in a way that is very cautious and very like uh oh yeah we're we're above board man well, yeah th- yeah this is we'll show you we'll show you what we've got i mean they're not showing you the real show but they're showing you something cuz this is this is the this is one of the many benefits of white privilege um is that you're able to deal with the cops and come up with this fake story and the cops are like well i guess since you're being forthcoming that makes sense um we don't so- want another waco yeah, yeah. So, anyway, so these the cops have gone away now. The the it's just the kids in the room, and there's a chess match going on between Darcy, the leader, and Pat, the leader of the Ain't Rights. Um, and, and there's sort of a what are we gonna do with the security guard that's in the room? What are we gonna do now that we've taken that security guard down and we have his gun? What are we gonna do? Uh, now that we've murdered that security guard and Darcy's trying to break into this room, the pragmatics of staying alive. And at one point, the gang decides to make a run for it. About half of them get murdered. 
Um, and then at, they all go back to the room. There's sort of this like this uh, subtraction fight where they all try and make a they they try and make just kind of dumb movements out, and then it never works out, and they have to scurry back like teenagers in a slasher movie. So really quickly on that, on the other side of it, we keep seeing all this planning that Darcy, the guy that that owns the dogs, and Macon Blair's character keep doing behind it, and you kind of like you're kind of following that they're trying to figure out how to stage the murder so it doesn't happen in the club and the dogs are going to do it. What you realize when they make that break is that their their full plan was for them to break out and then release the dogs into the bar so that they kill them. And they, so the first two get killed by dogs, but you are like, I, it's not till they finally leave that I think you're like, Oh, that's what they're doing. That's why they haven't gone and killed them. That's why they're not using knives or guns. They are like waiting for them to make their escape and then have surrounded the place with dogs for the dogs to kill them. Yes, exactly. So there there there's a reason why even though the neo-Nazis all have guns, uh they're they're not just shooting holes through the wall. One, they want to protect the club. Two, the amount of gunshots is like bad for business, right? It attracts attention. Three, uh if they hack the bodies apart, um, it's it's a little bit uh, easier Forensics. to cover up. Yeah, yeah. yeah I think it's exclusively to cover up the murders. Murders. Yeah, or murder. there is. I mean, no. I'm saying it's it's easy. It all feeds into the easier to murder part because if they shoot them, they have to like fish out the bullets, and that might leave residue and yada yada. Yeah, they break into the van and they see that oh, here's gas siphoning stuff. So our stage is going to be this guy, this Nazi, has a place a couple miles from here with all these rabid dogs. We're going to make it seem like they went to his house to siphon his gas and the dogs killed everyone. Yeah. So that's that's Darcy's plan on the sidelines while everyone else is just trying to find a way out. And when they're in there, Pat comes up with this crazy idea that they need to use tactics and they and all that's left is Pat and Amber uh, after the sort of attempts to get out, all keep failing. Um, and they even conscript one of the the neo-Nazis uh, who was in love with Emily uh, to help out. That doesn't go anywhere. We'll get to that later. Because um, he was, they find out that he was leaving with Emily, which is why Emily got killed. Yeah, yeah. Which we got um, a hint of at the weirdo's yeah. house in Portland. Yeah. yeah. So uh, <clears throat> they come up with this idea to use tactics. So Pat and Amber uh, use this, this, uh, one thing I didn't touch on is that earlier they dug a hole through the bottom of the room into a into a heroin lab below, um, which we talked about a little bit in the intro, but not here. Um, they use that hole in this sort of awesome action sequence to kill some of the Nazis. Uh, they use a microphone to scare off the dogs, and they eventually take their power back. They take Gabe uh, prisoner. <clears throat> Gabe bends over backwards for him uh, and gives them gives away uh, Darcy. And uh, the dog trainer's location, as well as some other skinheads, they go there to go get their revenge. So their defense has turned into like their their siege has turned into like a counter attack. Um, so they go and they they find Darcy, they find the the dog trainer, they find the the other neo Nazis left, and they put them down just as mercilessly as they were put down. Um, and they just sit there and wait for the cops to come. Uh, it's great. Yeah, you so forgot the part where really the quick. helicopter came with the caterers and the Playboy model that jumped out of the cake. 
<laughs> Sorry, I was I wasn't really paying attention. I was on my phone a lot. I forgot the part where uh <laughs> the Playboy model comes out of her cake and the camera's spinning around her as she dances. I forgot about that scene. Entirely. I think you're thinking of uh Green Room Redo. Oh. <laughs> oh shit, I watched it. It's not in the original cut. Yeah. Ah shit. So yeah, let's talk about really quickly the the, the what Bill was talking about earlier. The fact that there's sort of um they they know the game. They don't pretend like they're having a siege with the cops, right? They, they're having an exchange with the cops. They're saying, oh, yeah, we know you got that call, but here's what's really happening. Um, and uh, they're saying, oh, well, the cops aren't going to accept that these kids went missing because a lot of people know they're here. Like Daniel's cousin knows they're here. And other people, yeah. the, the, uh, the Internet maybe knows they're here, even though these these guys aren't on the Internet. They, they start speculating about Which all they the ways. And, and, and a whole room of people just saw them play and not... You know, there could be a girlfriend in there that's not part of this movement that won't, you know, there's witnesses. Yeah. So they determine to, they determine that their their method is going to be essentially like, all right, we're operating within the law. Um, you were called about a stabbing. Here's a stabbing. Uh, there's a bunch of dead kids here who are trespassing. Um, and so we're going to, we're going to basically... Uh, skirt the line of what castle law is. I know uh, Oregon doesn't have castle law, but you know the, the, the essentially trespassing equivalents, and say when the cops show up, just say, "Yeah, we had a bunch of dogs on the property guarding it. There was clearly, you know, uh, you know, d- dangerous dogs are here. No trespassing. Clearly marked signs, all that." And, yeah. And they still chose, and they and they were coming here to steal our gas. Isn't that terrible? And it sh- sort of shows you how these like neo Nazi groups can operate, um, not within the law. But sort of make it look like they're operating within a law. They're sort of they're sort of thinking as lawyers, and Darcy is smart. Darcy has thinking two or three steps ahead. Um, he even when he gets there, he castigates Gabe for for making a choice without him because Darcy's a complete control freak. Yeah, he's calling out fire code violations. That's another thing that Bill Bill was talking about. Like that that sort of like control freak. I'm gonna operate within the bounds of the law, um, but. Uh, sorry, I'm going to make it look like I'm operating within the bounds of the law to law enforcement so that they don't come sniffing around here so I can continue my business. That's that's sort of like that that sort of extra level of malice makes the movie so much scarier and so much more relevant to what's happening today. Yeah, it's a little bit like uh, the in The Wire, the way that Stringer Bell is like going to law, taking law classes and stuff like that. Because and the old thing about like, you don't think drug dealers know the law, they know the law better than anyone because they need to operate within the, the perception of the law to maintain their business. They need to know what cops are allowed to do, what cops aren't allowed to do, what they're looking for. And then they so like, yeah. I know that I'm a target. So if I have a if a cop comes here and sees a fire code violation, I may end up getting in more trouble than the bar down the street that's say not a neo Nazi bar. You know, so I need to understand what all the, the the health code, fire code, everything needs to be constantly up to code. I need to protect that. And yeah, that that is a level of danger because you have a situation where because they actually have no ethics and moral personally, they're using the law to defend themselves, basically corrupting the concept of the justice system in order to uh, in order to get get away with literal murder. Um, no, in order to but make, you can see why that would work, make right? Money. Yeah, in order to make money, it's the like, American dream. Really, <laughs> they might have yeah. to murder people to preserve their ability to make money. But it's it's incredible which is the which is the white collar crime thing too like you know what gets prosecuted and what doesn't so 
you could go to almost any major, like, you know, uh, Goldman Sachs and all these things, and you could find people... Who murder. Uh, yeah, literally, like, yeah, murder, violate, <laughs> but just violating all these security and exchange laws and stuff like that. It happens all the time. But but those companies that are supposedly above the board in American institutions know what they prosecute, what they don't, like how many people are working that, who who they need to grease or uh, get them off their back in order for them to not look the other way. Uh, I mean, we've seen that again, not to go back to the Trump administration, but everyone is constantly, I feel like on Twitter, like, yep, hey, that thing that they just did violates the Hatch Act. You can't go on TV and promote a can And like, but they know that who's who's prosecuting the Hatch Act, the Justice Department. Well, the Justice Department works for me. What do I actually, the law eventually becomes meaningless if you know enough of the ways to follow it or follow the stuff that you need to in order to essentially commit illegal or immoral acts. And it's super important also, the Nazi punks fuck off moment. Because if you're watching the movie and you know it's about a bunch of kids getting trapped by Nazis in a house, you're going to assume they kept playing a punk show that pissed off all the Nazis. This would be the 70s version of this, right? They played a show that was so, so countercultural and so fucking radical that the nazis had to kill them right in the right in the theater right in the stage they come um, to our house and they say nazi punks funk off but we're nazi we're, punks. We're yeah. um but the, the, the they uh they piss them off and then the crowd turns to their side there's actually a moment when the murderer of emily uh worm um he says yeah man your fucking set ruled like what was that last song um and he's doing it to intimidate them but like there's the idea is that they were into uh the set and they were uh they they eventually came back around and the even the the staff is really polite to them while they're figuring out not polite but you know what i mean like they're 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 um (laughs) they're evil polite i guess because they have ulterior motives but they're polite ish while they're trying to figure out all the stuff like they're like um Oh, yeah, like, you don't go in that room. We'll get your gear for you. And, um, <clears throat> hey, like, just stay here. It's fine. D- don't worry about the gun. Just stay here. It's fine. And, like, they're not mad at them at any point about the, the song. They're just mad that they witnessed a murder, and now they have to figure out what to do with them. Unrelated acts. Yeah, and I also think they're, like, they're playing Nazis punk fuck off as an important moment. And I, I don't mean this as an indictment of these characters, because, like, I get why they're there playing that song. And I don't think, like, I'm not ready to get into a big thing about, like, actually, they're the ones that know where they're going. And they're, you know, but there is a little bit of that, like, these, um, not to, again, put it in, like, um, current parlance of current events or stuff like that. But it, it is the equivalent of, like, calling Donald Trump Donald Drumpf, right? Yeah. <laughs> like, you're sure. You're making a statement that will mildly potentially annoy a couple people, but ultimately you're doing it at a place that you're giving people, uh, you're playing your their, your music for them after that's done. They're enjoying the music. You're getting paid by them. Like your, your statement is getting, whatever statement that that is, is getting lost in that it's the equivalent of like flipping the bird might feel good for you, but ultimately has no bearing on the rest of 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 anything right and uh and that and that is a great example of like that kind of like flaccid um protest while participating in the system wholeheartedly that you're technically then trying to protest you said flaccid (laughs) 
Sorry. I did. Sorry. Yeah. Sorry. So my so so flaccid like for example, if your dick <laughs> is flaccid, it's not oh. hard. It's you could talk about how much you're gonna have some good sex, but it may be difficult to do that with your with your soft penis. The sex. Mm-hmm. Oh. Can yeah. we talk can we talk about Mr. Middle Manager here, Gabe? Um played by Macon Blair. Um yeah, who's great in Blue Ruin, and then has become a great like writer director in his own right too. With uh, I don't feel at home in this world. Uh, yeah, I don't feel at home in this world. Rules. Um, it feels sort of like uh, he and Jeremy's only have similar sensibilities in a lot of sense. Though I don't feel at home in this world is much funnier. It feels um, like the Michael Shannon Jeff Nichols where they kind of made each other famous in these ways, yeah. and like then kept making like great stuff that we loved them both. Yeah, yeah, and 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 Macon Blair is awesome because he's this sort of character actor who teamed up with this up-and-coming uh guy jeremy Saulnier. he's also in uh, hold the dark uh and uh murder he wrote it too he co-wrote it yeah he's in all all of his movies and he's he's worked on the sort of writing and production side of a few of them and um the megan blair has this awesome sort of uh character approach where uh you sort of see why he would you sort of see why he would be successful in that role, right? Because he's got sort of this, like, he's sort of not threatening in a weird way. Like, he's got this sort of, like, schlub quality. Um, And, like, he's the sort of guy who can deal with a lot of, like, the day-to-day shit that Darcy doesn't want to deal with. (laughs) But also, like, when times times are tough, he also does, like, he goes and gets the gun and he pays some guys to stab each other. Um, And then at the end... The, the, the point is, when it finally comes to, like, you know, get his blood spilled for the cause, he's like, fuck this, I'll go to prison. <laughs> well, I mean, part of it, though, like, he is a good manager because he knows what it takes to keep his, you know, operation running smoothly, right? He knows Darcy's pressure points around code violations and noise violations, whatever it might be, right? He's going to keep things running smooth. He knows how to grease the wheels. He knows how to talk to the cops to get him to go away because of a stabbing. Didn't seem like his first time, right? But he's not that great at being, you know, a fascist or a neo-Nazi, whatever you want to call it. So he's struggling to prove himself there. And so then Darcy, Mr. You know, capitalist masquerading as something else, says, hey, let's do this final thing and I'll give you your red laces without killing someone, right? And he's like, holy cow, here's my opportunity, you know, to get my stripes or my third stripe without actually having to do anything. But he was never, like, he never expresses any true commitment to their cause, right? He skips the Wednesday seminar on cultural, (laughs) like, you know, differences. I mean, he he also is the perfect middle manager because, like, he rises through the ranks because other people, like, Oh, hey, my guy who was, like, super passionate and good at this went in jail. Like, yeah. your brother. Like, Worm's really passionate, but he stuck a knife in a girl's eye. And we don't know why. We just have to assume that that's the kind of thing that happens around those people. <laughs> I love, I love Bill, you called out the line where he's like, yeah, man, if you, if you pull this off, like, no, you know, this is kind of just, we're kind of just playing cleanup tonight, but... If you pull this off, you'll get you'll get your red laces, and then Darcy gets out the fucking uh, pressure uh, the pressure hose um, and starts get, starts getting his cleanup on, um, and and that's that's sort of um, his sort of attachment to the business half of things, whereas like all the red laces are attached to the the theology the the philosophy side of things is uh, is is a pretty potent sort of contrast like. 
Darcy will be there for the blood cleanup. Like, he's not squeamish in that way. But he's squeamish in the sense that he's like, no, I don't want to go in there with a fucking hatchet. That's not my job. Like, he has, he has, uh, I don't want to say delusions of grandeur because neo-Nazis very often fail upwards. <laughs> but the, he has, he has, a uh, calls calls within himself to like i no, i don't need to get into the dirty business but when the time comes to like get offered red laces like his fo- his his jaw drops a little bit yeah let's uh let's pivot that into a little bit about patrick stewart in this movie so relative uh, unknown and, before this film unknown uh yeah <laughs> I've actually never seen and let's use <laughs> let, let's use it to to talk about why this movie came to be so uh, Saulnier after Blue Ruin got um, not a huge box office but an indie smash great reviews he started freaking out he was like shit they're gonna offer me a big movie and I have this movie Green Room if I become a big director I'm never gonna be able to get it made so I better not take any of those offers because it Blue Ruin came out of time in 2013 where if you made a successful indie movie you were basically getting offered big budget stuff. It's where the Jurassic Worlds of the uh, of the world, I guess, came <laughs> came from. It's where like some things that didn't work out so well, like Fantastic Four from Josh Trank and stuff like that. Like this, he was at that perfect time where he was a, a white cis man and he made a successful movie. And the next step was a huge blockbuster. And he was uh, he writes about how how like he did get some offers like that, and he was terrified. He didn't want to do it because, and so he's like, well. If I'm, but he, but he was kind of resigned to the fact that that's his career arc, and technically that's kind of what he wanted. So he's like, "This is my one chance to make this movie, um, this fucking brutal Nazi revenge high, siege movie." So he decides to make it, um, knowing that he, thinking that he'll never get another chance to do it. Uh, and they send this, the script to Patrick Stewart, and Patrick Stewart, um, which was a big like, it was one of like three or four people he was eyeing for the role but was hoping that he was his number one choice patrick stewart according to him reads the script in a night becomes so scared by the script he tells the story that he locked all of his doors and like went and like hid in his room with a bottle of bourbon like to deal with having read the script and then like realized through that that like this is such a disturbing dark character that like I want to have a chance to play this because I don't get these kind of chances. And when Darcy finally shows up, if you if you are at all familiar with this movie, even before you saw it, you probably knew Patrick Stewart was in it. He was on a lot of the posters. It was like, hey, look at the Blue Room guy. Got Patrick Stewart to play a Nazi villain. <laughs> um, and still then, when the scene when he exits that car and is like, all right, everyone, like trying to calm down a situation, you only see the back of his head and you hear that like powerful voice. It is such a, like, immediate, oh, shit. One of the reasons why someone like Patrick Stewart has difficulty playing a villain, in theory, is because he has only been known as, like, this, like, uh, father figure who everyone looks up and respects. Like, it's whether he it's got big from, from... He got big Star from Trek. Picard, yeah. From Picard, and then, and then he became big with a non-Trekkie audience from being, like... Professor X in the X-Men movies, like the kindly father who takes in all of these people who've been rejected by society and tries to help them. And and what what what's amazing, well, I want to call out that moment, is because it's amazing how knowing the stakes, knowing where you're at, and seeing the way and the way he delivers those lines, it's amazing how a a career's worth of like I have warm feelings for you washes away in milliseconds and you feel nothing but fear. 
He is one of the best movie villains, I think. Yeah. Um, when the movie was over, I was still, like, thrumming from his energy, even though, like, he gets obliterated at the end. Um, he gets he gets shot the fuck up. Um, I was Very still- satisfyingly. Like, the bullet the bullet to the, the bald skull dome that keeps, yeah. like, that just has blood shoot out of it. And I should say, it's not like he hasn't played a, a, a villain before in, in some totally unwatched movies like Masterminds and... Um, some movies that only I remember that I saw three times in theaters, uh, Mel Gibson's Conspiracy Theory. Saw it. That one I've seen. <laughs> yeah. But, like, so he's, he, I mean, because he does. He has, I mean, he's, he's a bold British actor. Like, p- movies have figured out a way to slot him in as a villain before. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah. And, he, and, and, I mean, and, like, there's the less, less sort of villainous roles, but the more, like, you know, family-friendly ones. Like, he had played Scrooge and all the stuff that, like, you know, British character actors play, because all of them apparently did fucking Shakespeare at the Globe Theater, so all of them know, uh, know how to he's doing sonnets how right to now in the speak middle an iambic of... pentameter <laughs> yeah and make like let these long ass sentences flow naturally and like um uh, really don this character in a professional manner and like there's a reason they hire these british actors for these roles and that's because uh without trying they bring like a weight and gravitas to your you know silly little uh backwoods murder movie um they 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 bring such uh, a, a sort of import with them that they can't yeah. help but but carry right. Like, is that true for the drummer too? That... I don't I don't know his name, but the drummer in this is a peaky fucking blinder, um, <laughs> and his accent is so authentic and thick that I am convinced that he is definitely not an American. So it even slips towards the end of the movie where you can hear his act or not end of the movie, end of his life in the movie. You can hear his accent coming out before he makes his final like hurrah and run through the green room. But, and he's sort of a hothead on Peaky Blinders as well. I'm pulling up the actor's name. Um, I'm glad you called seen, that out. I haven't seen Peaky Blinders, but it's, it's, I mean, it's great. Yeah. I've heard that. I've recommended it to people blinders. on the show. Picky fucking blinders. Um, Violence is uh, earned in that movie. It, it's not unlike this one. I, I mean, <laughs> yeah, or not movie. Sorry, show. I mean, you get a lot of these like violent ones. I feel like this one, the violence is very much so appropriate. Like it's not the point of it. It's it's needed. The violence in this, whether it's the dogs or even again just the shot to Patrick Stewart's dome at the end, it feels visceral. And like yeah. hard to watch. Let's talk about the shockingness of it because there's a couple things this movie does. Two two notable things that the, the script makes that makes this super subversive. And I hate the term elevated horror and elevated genre. I think I said it earlier, but but I like to. I like you to, also I, hate elevators. You I, prefer, I also hate elevators. You prefer a good stare. What about an I'm, escalator? I'm a, uh, escalators. I'm on the fence about. Okay. I'm on the fence about it, okay? Though I have hard feelings about fences, ironically. Yeah, I fucking hate fences. The fact that you bring that up while we're talking about something that you dislike is very hurtful yeah, to me. Yeah, yeah. Fences my make my assholes. Face. What do you call it? Thanks, Robert Frost. Is a big fence a wall or is a small wall a fence? I mean, that's... So true, Bill. Hmm. So true. I like to think that we build fences in Bill, our Bill, I'm hearts, glad we brought you on for this. Thank you. And then we build fences on the earth, you know? But yeah, so there's two moments that I think... Uh, encapsulate the the sort of subversive shockingness so like horror movies are known for being like and this is more of like a thriller mold but like horror movies are known for like we have to subvert your expectations constantly but like sometimes these thrillers they can be really over the plate 
and you know from the first 10 minutes who's going to survive and you're probably going to be a 90% right. Um, in this, the way that the movie just keeps throwing the, the, the ain't rights at this churn of Nazi violence, the dogs, and really quickly, the dogs are especially angering and we'll talk about it more, but like the dogs are especially angering because like dogs as weapons of war is, is awful because the dogs are Nazis. The dogs have no fucking idea what they're doing except for being obedient. Like the, the, the dog, and then when you shoot the dog, you try and stop the dog, you hurt the dog. Like, oh shit, like now you just hurt a dog. You have to carry that around. Even though like the dog didn't even, the, the dog was just tr- trained to do that shit. The dog doesn't have any sense of like willpower over, over like the dog isn't like, well, you know, I went to a rally once and then. <laughs> yeah, which is also why like I really love, I know some people weirdly complained about the dog thing at the end where it's like Chekhov's dog that actually doesn't go off. But I think that's actually a perfect way to illustrate the fact that, hey, the dogs aren't the villains. <laughs> the dogs yeah. are being used by the villains where at the end. So um, a dog escapes um, and it, you see it kind of slowly run back. And when it, at the end of it, uh, they've killed Darcy, they've killed the dog trainer and you expect the dog to start attacking the two that have survived instead. Well, the dog hasn't been ordered to do that. The, the dog instead just goes up to the trainer and sits next to him. <laughs> like yeah, he didn't get the, the, the kill command or the bite yeah. command boss. <laughs> yeah, where it's not like it's not like if like a human had survived and walks in and sees everyone dead, he's like, "Are you kidding me? I'm going to use with my last breath. I will kill the people." <laughs> like he just, he's a dog. This would be a really bad time to find out that my dog, who sits next to me and listens attentively uh, while we we record, this would be a really bad time to find out uh, that this dog that I adopted uh, actually was trained as a Nazi dog, and Voss is his, his attack order, and I'm the only one in the room. Um, yeah, it's uh, actually, and also it'd make for a great episode. So <laughs> <laughs> Peter dies from his dog. No, no, yeah. we we don't let him die. We keep him breathing so he can stage his body. On another podcast. <laughs> Here's what yeah, I said. I was tr- I was trespassing on comedy bang bang grounds. <laughs> not uh, not good for the long term uh, podcast, but good for the, like this episode would get talked about. Yeah. <laughs> the time that the guy talking about green room accidentally used the Nazi kill word triggered uh, his stray dog. Triggered his his dog to, to bite his throat out. The- Guys, just know that my final my final thing I would do as I'm dying is not write a note to my wife or anything. It would be to mm-hmm. hit stop and tra- drag the track over to Dropbox. <laughs> yeah. Thank thank you Peter. I much appreciate as someone who might have to edit this. Real team yeah. player. I'll have to I'll have, at the funeral I'll go up to Molly and be like, "Hey, could you I'll send you a Dropbox link, but um, <laughs> like not it doesn't have to be right now. The episode doesn't come out in a couple months, but uh just like uh we do have a schedule. So if you could, you could send it over. You could use uh, Google Drive. Doesn't doesn't matter. What I, I know timing's not. I know great. you're grieving. <laughs> yeah, grieve, uh, grieve in your own way and send the file in your own way. I could just take his computer. Actually, he would probably, to be to be fair, he'd probably want me to do that for a couple other reasons unrelated to the podcast. <laughs> so yeah, he he uh, he bequeathed me his computer. If you could just hand that hand that right over, I think everyone everyone feels a little better, and you don't have to do the work then. Um, it's also why uh, 
the dog thing. I've said this so many times in this podcast. I'm going to say it one more time because I want to underline how much I fucking hate this movie. Uh, the movie Max in 2015 has a climactic scene where the quote unquote good dog throws two of the quote unquote bad dogs off waterfalls. <laughs> <laughs> The bad dog's being trained by the bad guys trying to kill the military guy and his dog. And it's like, and the movie clearly thinks we're supposed to be like cheering at this moment where it's like, you just, you threw a dog off a cliff. Like, <laughs> like I get that it, the dog was trying to hurt the dog that we're supposed to like, but like as, as a, as a person who knows how animals work, they weren't evil. To, this isn't a cartoon. <laughs> like, <laughs> like. Can't a dog just run away? You had to throw two dogs off a waterfall? It feels excessive, movie. Faith-based movie for children. And that's why in a recession, people will stop buying food for themselves before they will stop buying food for their dogs. Anyways, you were whispering earlier. I was really excited for the moment on this podcast where Peter talked about fascists failing upwards, that you guys are going to go out on the terrorists, and I had like all my Mussolini jokes ready, and it never happened. <laughs> Uh, yeah, see, the thing is, right now, Bill, um, given the food, the, the inability for people to get fresh fruit and stuff because they don't want to go to the stores and supply lines being a little low, um, nobody's going to be throwing rotten fruit at us. Oh, are you guys... They'll, they'll or, have eaten it months Or ago. we're social distancing, right? You guys can't go out on the terrace because that would be too close. And... That would be way too close. Here's the, here's the problem with uh, recording Opposite all terraces this stuff. in our Italian courtyard. Uh, so the other person I know we're we're coming up on time. A uh, couple other people I want to talk about on the cast. So obviously, very sadly, uh, Anton Yelkin. I think it's it Yelkin. Yeah, I think so. His or last Yelkin, uh, movie that came out while he was alive. He died shortly after this movie came out. Uh, just an incredible talent, uh, young and everything he did. So good in a movie like this too, where he has to kind of be the uh, the reluctant hero. Uh, interestingly enough, also a movie that I really enjoy that he was the reluctant hero in, um, that he's great in, is the remake of Fright Night, which also, uh, his love interest in that movie is also in this movie, uh, Imogen Poots. The Poots, oh, yeah. as we I call it. I never connected as, that. Yeah. The huh. Poopster. She's a badass. The in the yeah, movie. he's, he's so rad. Well, I say um, she was. He is too, though. Yeah. Yeah, she's great. She's also in great in 28 Weeks Later. Uh, that's the thing where I was introduced to her. Um, she, she's been turning up in just like a, a lot of rad genre movies for a, a decade plus. She also like uh, she's she plays um, uh, Andy Samberg's character's fiance in a pop star. She's very funny in that. Oh, and is. I just I just watched uh, Vivarium where it's basically just uh, the, the her and uh, Jesse Eisenberg show. And she is so goddamn good in that movie. Yeah, um, I gotta check I, that I, out. I like that movie quite a bit, but holy shit. Like, it's one of those things where she's just great in everything I've seen her in. And I'm very surprised that she's not, like, a true A-list star at this point. But um, I am happy every time I see her pop up in a movie. Because she's so... She's very good at, like, playing different characters. Like, her character... And this is it. Yeah, I'm not surprised you didn't recognize her because she. It doesn't feel like it feels like unrecognizable from some of her other performances while still being very good. She was my you favorite cool. in the movie. I mean, she's so from good. a character perspective, not like pure acting. Like she was my favorite. It's the just, moment where she puts the cigarette in the guy's mouth. I mean, there's just so many. Like the casual yeah. like gunshot to the head in the basement, or the 
I don't give a fuck what your island band is, you know? Like, the last line of the the movie when she's like, tell someone who cares. Like, yeah. Even better than that, like, tell someone who gives a shit. Yes. Like, and and she has has another great line in the movie, which is, after the siege, they, they can get away from the site. They can... They they can walk away. Uh, Gabe finds some farmers pretty quickly. They can get away. They can go to the cops. They can figure it out. But um, what they elect to do is instead go after Darcy and his crew and and make things right um, and get revenge for their people. And he says, "Are we like are he, he, uh, Pat uh, Anton Yelchin says something like, like I don't I didn't know we were gonna do it like this. Like they were." They, yeah, they, after after the first one, they kill the first one. Yeah, and then she goes, "Well, why else are we walking up here?" <laughs> like yeah. you knew exactly what you were doing coming up here. Like we had we had fucking free reign. We could have kept walking along that highway. We would have we would have been out of here. This is fucking. We're near Portland. Um, this is Pacific. These are Pacific Northwest uh, Nazis. This is <laughs> we're, we're near civilization. These guys are just you know a little bit further out. I do like Pat's rejoinder to that though. Where he's like, I thought we were going to mess up their crime scene. <laughs> <laughs> like, which is so funny because it, it, it is, I do, I don't feel like that's a sarcastic quip. I feel like he was following her lead because he's not really an action hero star, even though he has a couple of great moments. And like, he wasn't like, sure, yeah, let's go do that. And then not realizing fully that like, hey, in order to ruin their crime scene, what do you, what do you think you're gonna do? Kick the bucket out and walk away? Like they've been trying to kill you on movie. It is it is you or them. Yeah. Which which Imogen Poot's character understands and Anton Yelchin's doesn't quite, I think, until that moment. And I actually I would actually say he doesn't understand until the end, because like at the end of the movie, he still thinks like I don't think and again, it's a lot that's happened to him, so I'm not going to uh indict him as a character for not understanding the gravitas. But, like, he sits down thinking, well, we have been through some stuff. We're bounded from life here. Let me let me share my secret with you that I've kept from everyone else. But, holy shit, we've been through some stuff. So I might as well tell you, of all people, what my Desert Island band is. And she's like, are you, like, fucking ki- Who cares? <laughs> my friends are dead. We've had to kill a bunch of people. It's We're going to have to deal with the cops. It's not like this is going to be like, go free. Sorry about all this stuff that happened. Like, like you think I get, you think that's what our relationship is that I've been dying to know your character. Like, fuck you. Yeah. It actually, it actually links back to something I did. I was trying to say earlier and then I got distracted by the dog thing. Uh, there's two points in the movie. That's a really subversive moment. And it's a, because you expect the movie to be like, all right, shit. Like, let's have a moment of sentimentality before all this is over. And then the movie's like, no, why would there be a moment of sentimentality? This wasn't something beautiful. This was a horrible fucking thing that never should have fucking happened. Uh, anyways, uh, but the two moments that uh, are really uh, subversive for me are one, <clears throat> they establish Reese is like the tough guy. That's the Peaky Blinders guy, uh, Joe Cole. Um, and so Reese gets murdered first, basically. Uh, around the same time Tiger gets murdered. Tiger getting murdered makes kind of sense. Um... He and Alia Shawkat are kind of like the innocents uh, from a sort of outsider perspective. Like, they're not violent. They don't understand violence. Um, Pat doesn't really either, but he does eventually. So they those two end up coming across as the innocents. Um, but Reese gets, it gets murdered first. And that really makes you feel hopeless. Because you're like, 
he can at least do kung fu moves. He was the only one that was fine holding the gun immediately. He's like, yeah, fuck this shit. Give me the gun. Yeah. And like when they, so the power goes out at one point and the guy is sitting in the chair and um, both Reese and um, Amber step in and she's like, she puts a cigarette in the guy's mouth and she's like, that cherry does anything you don't like shoot. Uh, and Reese has not taken his, his hand off the gun. He has not taken his trained off the, he hasn't turned his attention in the dark and panicked. He had his gun pointed right at the guy. Like they're establishing Reese as a badass, and Reese is going to fucking go out on his own. And Reese essentially makes a run for it, gets murdered. Then uh, in a little bit, um, they, they flip Daniel. Daniel says like, shit, I'll I'll help you guys get the hell out of here. Like Emily shouldn't have died. This is bullshit. Like, well, he kind of. I think he actually already kind of went in knowing that. Hey, isn't my girlfriend supposed to be in here? What the fuck's going on? Because he immediately walks in and is like, "Hey, other guy, get out of here. I need to figure out what happened." Yeah. So he he goes in and he's like, I, I think he goes in basically being like, "The revenge is mine." And then once he once he sees Amber's face, Amber is you know yeah. Emily's friend. He's like shit they did they murdered her and they're covering it up and they're gonna kill you too like i can't let this happen i was leaving their group anyways so they flip yeah. daniel daniel's like i'm not even supposed to be here today. <laughs> so they flip daniel daniel is guiding them out and he's like come on let's go and then he gets his fucking head blown off immediately yeah yeah and that that mo- that second moment of just complete helplessness right like that second moment where the movie's just like, you thought you had a tough guy, another tough guy to take over the proceedings. Like, yeah, that's a good twist. One of the Nazis turns. Like, that seems like a good twist. Um, yeah. it, you know, it empowers the group right after they've lost a couple members. Uh, and then he gets his head fucking blown off. Like, excellent action movie, thriller, horror movie subversion. Like, that is what genre movies are supposed to do is say, all right. I'm writing myself deeper into this fucking corner, and we're gonna find our ways our way out together. They like to well, punctuate that's the thing, those is that... more moments with gore. You think about it, like yeah. the, the, the guy in the green room, Reese finally kills someone. Like I, I think he choked him out and killed him before like uh, Amber took the knife to him. But like you're like, oh shit, he just killed someone. Then she slices open his belly to make sure he's out. <laughs> Great moment. Gore. Right? How do we know he's and out? Then, and then you're like, she oh, just this, walks up. this this this. This guy's changed. He's on our team. He's going to save us. Get to the bar. You see his head blown wide open, right? Yeah. They, they punctuate it so well with like, oh, yeah, there's gore in this. You know what I mean? Like it brings it right back. I love it. <sighs> it's so good. And also, I love that moment while we're talking about the choking out moment. I love when um, I think it's I think it's Alia Shawkat says, um, how long does it take until you know for sure? Which is an excellent action movie moment because we covered Lethal Weapon a few years ago. Um, and Lethal Weapon, I'm pretty sure Riggs snaps, uh, off the top of my head, five people's necks in that movie. And it's just like, all right, snap, all right, snap. This, this moment where all of them have to take down just one guy. Reese has complete control over him. It doesn't seem like the guy's going to be able to break out at all. And, and Alia Shawkat asks a question that everyone is thinking, well, how long do you need to choke someone out? And the question, the answer is a lot fucking longer than it <laughs> you'd think. Yeah. Yeah, uh, and I also like that, like, the movie's called Green Room, obviously, which, you know, kind of sets up to thinking that, uh, as part of the subversion, that, like, the end is going to be them getting out of the green room, right? Like, that's when they need to leave and they make their escape. Well, you're taught all those moments end up with them retreating back to the green room. (laughs) They, They escape from the green room 40 minutes in, and then 
that becomes their their sanctuary. Like, oh shit, every time we leave the green room, bad stuff happens. Let's regroup in the green room. Um, and I, I really like that because there's so much of this that like I think could have been set up for uh you know, one final escape after uh, handling all these people, attacking them, and now we're getting them. But they get out pretty early. And then each time you're like, okay, well, they're out now. What's going to happen? Uh, it ends with them the first two times anyways, right back where they started with less people and less weapons. You know, it's, you say that. It's a fantastic point. Now that I think about it, like, it's less of a siege than an escape. I mean, they don't really come into the room all but those two lackeys at the end when they've tried to, you know, finish the job. And they make it an ambush as a, as a siege moment, right? Like that's that's like the one moment in the movie where it all flips on its head is them basically saying, "All right, we'll let you in, and when you're in here, we'll fucking take care of you." Right? Well, it's exactly right because they we... finally realize, like, oh, they're not trying to break in here. No they're not trying to break in here. They're waiting for us to figure out that. Oh, wait, are they gone? Should we just leave? Like that's what they're waiting for. So they don't want to come in here. They want us out there. Let's let them in here and see if we can control the situation better because we are having no luck out there. Everything is going wrong out there. You know how many throat rips we saw? So many throat rips. This is got, <laughs> it's like MacGruber up in Dogs here. Dogs have huge teeth. The Nazis get a get a turkey in throat rips. We didn't talk about this earlier, but another quick note: uh, something that's uh, we talked about uh, the uh, Nazi punks fuck off doesn't matter. You know what also doesn't matter? At one point when they're on stage, uh, Elia Shawkat turns to Pat and says, uh, if you don't play the song, I'm going to tell him you're Jewish. Um, and Elia Shawkat is also famously Jewish. Um, she, she talks about her faith a lot. And, and she's, you know, in Search Party. Some of that's in there, too. Like, the fact that a few of them, it's not just that they're, the fact that they're all, like, you know, if not anarchists, left-leaning kind of folks, um, doesn't matter. The fact that one or two of them is Jewish doesn't matter. It's just the fact that they saw the murder. I, I forgot that point entirely. Like, these these kids, like, truly, like, they could have been anyone. Uh, well, that's the thing is, like, it's about protecting his business. He says at one point, right, like, Patrick Stewart's like, hey, your dog, your killer dog business is going to suffer from this, from our plan as long as my business is protected, I'll make sure that you're well compensated, right? Like, it's never about their ideology. It's always about their business, protecting their business, or at least from uh, Patrick Stewart's standpoint, protecting that. Like Capitalism. Yeah. It, American dream. It's, yeah, it's, it's all I'll about protecting. Scratch mine. Yeah, it's, it's protecting capitalism, not ni- Nazi ideology. The way their 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 capitalism benefits, or their way they utilize their capitalism, is by um, is through Nazi ideology. But it's not it's not that Nazi ideology has led them to capitalism as a way to like gain enough money to propagate their like you know Aryan race bullshit. It's the other way around, which I think is a very important message. Its underlying message of how closely fascism and capitalism coexist. I think is more apparent in 2020 to me than it was in 2016. Or maybe we're just smarter in 2020 than we were in 2016. Well, I I just think we have a lot more real world examples of it. (laughs) (laughs) They were there in 2016. This one's just easier to see. I don't think it's us reading into the movie stuff that isn't there. I think it's us us recognizing, maybe uh, more clearly recognizing components of the movie that were always there. 
um, or the that we just examples do. around us yeah. are easier because they've been sprayed orange in a tannium booth. So I I think one line in the movie that I think is delivered by Anthony Eltoon with this like sense of uh, both realization. Uh, he already knows that they're gonna they're trying to kill him, but there's like a level of hurt to his voice that I think is so resonant to this movie. It's uh, so resonant to our the way this movie relates to our current like socio political environment, and that's when he realizes that not only they're trying to kill him, he says they're making it our fault. Like they're making the fact that these people who went to go play a show and witnessed someone getting murdered, which is you know that's wrong. We saw something wrong. We saw something that shouldn't be happening. And now they're trying to kill us for it. And at the end of the day, if they succeed, we're going to be seen as people who are breaking the law. And, hey, yeah, maybe you didn't deserve to die. But, you know, if you if you wouldn't have been doing that, you would have had a better chance of not surviving. And the way that his voice cracks when he says it, and, it, and in some ways that is more hurtful and painful and harder for him to process in that moment than the fact they're trying to kill him. Like, in some ways that, like, yeah, they're trying to kill me. I saw a murder. They're trying to cover it up. Like, that's that's easy to understand good by, bad by. But there's something insidious and evil about making your murder your fault. And I, I can't help but see that it's so resonant to, our enti- like, our entire world right now. Like, it, it's when, when we see, like, Mexican people in cages. Well, no one wants them in the cage, but it's their fault for trying to go across the border, letting aside the fact that it's it's fucking not. That's how our refugee program works, and we've we've decided to treat them cruelly cruelly, but I think there there is a contingent of even like non-true believers that just buy into the fact that the things that happen to minorities or gay people or trans people or women or all this violence that like per- perpetrates against all of these uh marginalized groups, it's like kind of still their fault and obviously that's not the same thing here but i do think in that moment it is like for him it's not that they're trying to kill me that doesn't make sense it's you're gonna make this my fault and i think that is like the key line in the moment delivered in like such a perfect or uh, the key line of the movie uh delivered in in such a um such a great line delivery understated line delivery by anton yelkin where where you really are seeing the insidiousness of the evil of uh, racism, right wing politics, like whatever else you want to say in that moment where we're just not going to hurt you, we're going to make you the perpetrator of the violence. Yeah, I think that's I think that's pretty apt. I I I don't really have a, a separate thought from that. I more so want to just tack onto that. Um, the there's a moment when. Uh, Darcy is begging, not begging, but he's, Darcy is, is pleading to Anton Yelchin before they know that they're dead meat, essentially, um, saying, just the gun is unregistered. Can you just give me the gun and we'll be good? The, if you give me the gun, we'll figure it all out. And then finally, Anton Yelchin is like, OK, yeah, we'll, we'll we'll we've negotiated. Here's the gun. And Anton Yelchin gets his arm hacked the fuck apart. Yeah. And. Uh, the, the, the ju- jumping back to something I said at the beginning of the episode, I was talking about how this this movie doesn't uh, doesn't turn movie uh, Nazis into comic book goofy villains. It doesn't make them into slapsticky, uh, you know, cartoon characters, which is you know one approach. 
Um, but in these modern times where we're dealing with actual fucking fascists uh, in all levels of government, we need to, you need to step hard to Nazis. There's no half measures. There's no negotiating. They are not negotiating in good faith. They do not have your best interests in mind. There's absolutely no fucking reason for you to pretend like, well, if we just use our, our dignified and standard responses here, we can talk down yeah. the murderous Nazi pack. <laughs> uh, there's yeah. no reason Makes for, sense. for centri- there's no reason for centrism here, uh, folks. There's that you, when you step to Nazis, you step hard. Um, that's all I wanted to tack onto that. It's like the old thing about like uh, Republicans, like they're not actually negotiating. So if you agree with them or give in, you're expecting then to get what you want. Instead, they're going to move two two spaces to the left or the right and ask you to meet them there. Like there's not a enough. So yeah, they spend so much time trying to get the gun. They get the gun. Now I want your fucking arm, <laughs> you know? And that is the perfect metaphor for fascism. It's like, you can't, negotiate because they're not actually trying to figure out a fair deal for the both of you they're trying to take things from you one inch at a time yeah exactly um bill do you have anything to tack on one or... one arm at a time um one arm at a time. <laughs> no, I, I can do my normal like flippant responses to keep it quick i mean <laughs> all i'd say is after having this in-depth conversation i've decided that it is a movie about capitalism and it is an escape <laughs> movie not a siege movie so perhaps you guys should ship this to another month um <laughs> but yeah we'll do titan ae yeah oh, great <laughs> no i mean look the one moment for me that like i love this movie so thank you guys for introducing it to me um one thing that bothered me was like the whole like thing hinges on um pat or you know our our reluctant lead guy um stepping in to grab his bandmate's phone seeing the body he looks up quizzically and the other girl's like call the cops and he runs out of the room that seems logical to me but like why is there running out of the building does he choose to actually call law enforcement because i feel like most of this like they they're stopped in the hall they check his phone, they realize he called the cops, and they're like, oh, crap, throw him in the room, we'll wait. No, they're there, though, in the hallway. I think he realizes, oh, shit, everyone saw me go in there. This is my one chance to get a call off. You, so you think, okay. I mean, I'd feel better if that's the way it went down, because it just bothered me throughout the movie that it's like, why the fuck did he not get out and call the cops? Like, I, Yeah, because they're there. That guy, uh, the security guard, is like two paces in front of him and sees him go back. And these little like nitpicky things don't belong in like the broader commentary about how good a movie is. Um, but it bothers me. And so I bring it up, but like, I feel like he put them all in this situation. Like he fucked up. They should have taken Reese's approach. Like we're drunk. We didn't see anything, you know, Zekai, hail Hitler, let us leave. And then they call the cops. <laughs> you know, guys, I'm really glad you murdered, uh, murdered that one. Yeah. She looked like, Oh yeah. I hated her too. Yeah. Let us out uh, of here. Yeah, I'm going to go now. <laughs> That's the lady that wasn't cheering. Good. Glad you got her. All right. We're just going to head out now. Uh, um, yeah. Also, like, like I mentioned in the beginning, like they tied so many loose ends up in this movie. Not loose ends. They foreshadow or link so many individual comments throughout the entire movie. It's almost 
too neat of a puzzle in cases. Um, but I still enjoyed it. I didn't catch most of it till the second watching, but like every little thing from, you know, the first 10 minutes you catch up on in the back end and it just continues throughout the film. Like without a doubt, you, everything that's been referenced once from the gas can to his jujitsu to, uh, the fact the cousins staying at the punk guy's house to the fact that, um, there is like the shots for the dog or it's just every little thing kind of ties back in and it felt almost like a little bit too cute but it's still like i said awesome movie uh yeah bill thank you for coming on i'm so glad we got to introduce this to you i'm glad in our mission of being the people now when so you when you when you talk <laughs> you guys to are my people go, well, the, i can talk yeah you can be like the people i talked to said this about it you can just be referring specifically to the two yeah, of people us. said i should watch this the people were right. I have people. Uh, next people week, Peter, we have we're wrapping it up with a very, very recent movie. It's a uh, recent. One, no one has seen it. Yeah, and is uh, I'm not saying like, no one, it, no one, but no one go watch it. No one up to this point, including our guest, has seen it. <laughs> yeah, we haven't seen it. We decided something. Bar. Yeah, it's a 2020 movie. <laughs> it's a 2020 movie. It uh, is in theaters on demand, which means it's only on demand. It's one of those movies, though. Even when it says like when you go through Amazon or Vudu and it says in theaters on demand. No, it's not in any theater. Maybe a place somewhere. This is where you're watching it. So I've heard really good things. I'm excited. It's called VFW. And we have another uh, real life guest, Peter. Yeah. My buddy So Heel's going to be on. Uh, yeah. And I, I looked at his uh, Twitter because uh, you sent it to me. He's A, very funny. And B, uh, he's uh, he'll probably want to plug himself. But his uh, looks like he's written for some well-known publications. I'm excited to talk to him. Yeah, he's uh he's a good dude. Uh, I'm excited to get Soheel on the show finally. Talked about it. Uh, Soheel and I meet up uh about once a year because he lives in New York. And I live in California. We met about once a year uh for Christmas and and uh for the past two Christmases we talked about getting him on the show uh, and we'll finally do it. Uh, six months. Did we even say Christmas. the movie? Yeah, with a movie called VFW about people out of VFW. Uh, fending off a siege. Yeah, so uh, more siege movies in Siege Month. <laughs> if you're uh, listening to this now, siege. go back to my letterbox from April and see what star rating I gave it to see if we liked it. Is it yeah. And then tune in next week to hear us talk it about better it. better stars. Yeah, Bill, do you want to plug Steven Rainbow Seagal. Six Siege? Yeah, I'll plug Rainbow Six Siege and anything that Steven Seagal stars in. Uh, anyways, yeah, what a fun way to end <laughs> our green room app. Can't think of anything else to say. Uh, so yeah, good night. Don't let the Nazis bite. Please don't Nazi let them. Don't let the Nazi dogs bite, I think is more appropriate. Please don't allow it. Don't hide your capitalist habits with Nazism.
you so much for listening to We Love to Watch. If you made it to the end, hopefully you liked what you heard today. And if you'd like to hear more, please go to patreon.com slash we love to watch. And if you can chip in a few bucks, that would really help us keep the lights on and keep us moving forward. Uh, it wasn't an implicit threat by Peter. He just didn't know how to say it. But either way, we'll continue to make more. But it would be helpful uh, as we explain to our loved ones where all our money is going, which is all on server space. Uh, <laughs> if you can't, <laughs> uh, if you don't have a few bucks to chip in, we totally understand. And you want to support the show. Show, we truly absolutely would appreciate a uh, review on iTunes. I know every podcast says it, and it's because it really does help. And so every podcast wants that help. So please go leave us a positive review so that when people find this show organically, they hopefully want to tune in and listen. And thanks again for all of your listenership and support and time throughout the years. Uh, we really do appreciate you uh, with kisses and smooches, Peter and Aaron. <laughs> Mm. Mm. <laughs> <laughs>